following is a presentation of the Church of the Living God in Traverse City, Michigan. We are going to go through verse 5 today, so I'm just going to start reading at verse 1, so it kind of catches us up to where we are today. Jude, a slave of Jesus the anointed and a brother of James, the one to you, the ones who have been called, whom God the Father loves, and whom Jesus the anointed one has kept. May kindness, peace, and love be yours in abundance. And that's what we covered last week. Dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. We mentioned this before. Um, the idea that Jude was going to write about this particular thing, but he sees a challenge the church is facing, and he says, sorry, I'm going to have to set this aside. This is actually a more important thing to say right now. Certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who reject restraint and embrace lawlessness, perverting the offer of God's grace by turning liberty into a license for immorality. And in addition, they deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. So perhaps more than any other writer in the New Testament, James or Jude stresses that the lifestyles of false teachers will reveal them. And it's interesting, this passage doesn't seem to imply that uh, what the false teachers did in the church made them ungodly. It says, no, actually, ungodly people have crept in. And then this is what ungodly people do. They will undermine orthodoxy, that's right belief, and they will undermine orthopraxy, that's right actions. And so while clearly what they're doing is furthering ungodliness, the, the cause of this was in them as they came into the church. It wasn't something external to them in that sense. So if you remember our introduction to Gnosticism last week, uh, the Gnostics were teaching that the skin and the, school and the soul were not connected. Uh, and the problem is that it turns out actions and beliefs are intertwined. And when you undermine one, you're going to undermine both of them. So this is where you see Jude connect these two things. They deny certain things about Christ and they live a particular way. So one thing I was wondering this week is, how do these kinds of things take foothold in a church? Because the Jewish people entering the church would have been raised in a community that had very strong restrictions on sexual immorality, for example, and would have had very strong teachings on the nature of God. The Gentiles that are coming into the church were probably coming out of temple worship, and a lot of the temple worship at that time used sexual promiscuity as an act of worship. So as they came into the church and they became Christians, which, which was a hurdle, I mean, that would have cost them something. This wouldn't have been done lightly. Surely they were given the teaching that God is going to demand something of you, that God's people are holy, they're righteous, they're called out and separate from the ways of the world. So... Both of them would have had either teaching all their lives or clear teaching when they entered the church. So they would have been able to see that what these false teachers are proposing as a lifestyle is an immoral lifestyle. They would have been able to say, um, I was either raised learning this about God or I was brought into the church and was told this immediately about God and now they're telling me something different. It, I don't think it would have been like so subtle that they didn't notice this would have been a challenge to them in some fashion. 
And I wonder if this is an example of what the Bible means when it talks about people having itching ears. That's just a phrase that means we kind of keep our ear out to hear things that we want to hear, and then we'll gravitate toward people or toward teachers who are telling this, these things that kind of scratch that itch that we're having. Because it doesn't appear that these teachers were telling people that they should be immoral. They were saying that they could be. And then they were saying, you can do this because God's grace will cover it. So it wasn't an order. From what I can see in this passage, this was not an order to be sexually immoral. This was permission to be sexually immoral. And when you're given permission and then you do it, it's because it's something you wanted to do. So I think the itching ears of these formerly restrained people wanted to hear that they had permission to do something that they wanted to do but hadn't been doing. I mean, Jesus addresses this kind of heart problem all the time. Look at the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus gives example after example. You've had this law in place that has stopped you from acting out in a particular way, but Jesus says, now I'm going to challenge your heart because I know your hearts want to do those things. And that appears to be what's happening here. The hearts of the people were waiting for permission to do some things. They wanted to be holy, but without being set apart. They wanted freedom, but they didn't want the responsibility that went with freedom. They wanted to be part of a covenant community without having to value what covenants actually look like. They wanted the rewards of the kingdom and the spoils of the empire. In fact, I think I would argue that their commitment was to their own desires. Their commitment actually wasn't to God. Turns out their desire, their autonomy were idols in their lives, and as these false teachers came in and gave them permission to pursue this idol, they went with it. That's what their ears were wanting to hear. And then it turns out our head and our hands are guided by and respond to the desires of our heart. Now, rather than me just saying this, I'm going to give you a bunch of verses from the Bible. If you simply look up in the Bible the word heart and find all the different places the Bible talks about the heart, you're going to find a ton. This is a short sample. It's going to take me a little bit to read through them, but I want us to all be on the same page that the Bible stresses the desires of our heart are the fountain from which our thoughts and our actions spring. Proverbs 23, 7, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. Luke 6.45, the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil, for out of the abundance of the heart his mouth speaks. Proverbs 4.23, guard your heart. Everything you do flows from it. Matthew 15.18 and 19, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person, for out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person, and they came out of the heart. Luke 12, 34, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Romans 6, 17, thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Psalm 37, 4, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Note, the desires of the heart that you're given are the ones that have delighted in the Lord, not just any old desires. 
Acts 8.22, repent therefore of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. Proverbs 27, 19, as, the, as in water, face reflects face, so the heart of man reflects the man. Okay, I'm going to stop with those examples. There's a whole lot more, but I think that my point is made. The Bible sees our heart, the seat of our desires, as the thing out of which flows everything else. And this is why, without Jude saying this specifically, I think what we're seeing in Jude is that the reason people suddenly gravitated toward this lifestyle, this immoral lifestyle that clashed with the, with the Bible because someone came in and said, uh, oh, wait, I can give you the actual desires of your heart and they gravitate toward it. That's why they embrace the false teaching that lets them to do it and then they absolutely engage in it. They weren't told to, don't forget this, they weren't told to, they were given permission to and that's where they went where they were given permission. That's a heart issue. James K.A. Smith is a professor down at Calvin College, and I keep telling Braden he needs to make sure to get into one of his classes. He wrote a profound book called You Are What You Love. And I, I want to read an expert excerpt. Uh, once again, it's not a short excerpt, but you'll see the words on the screen. So if you could follow along with me here, I think it'll once again, uh, I think it'll really solidify the foundation of where we're going to go with this today. What do you want? It is the first, last, and most fundamental question of Christian discipleship. In the Gospel of John, it is the first question Jesus poses to those who would follow him. When two would-be disciples who are caught up in John the Baptist's enthusiasm begin to follow, Jesus wheels around them and pointedly asks, what do you want? It's the question that is buried under almost every other question. Jesus asked each of us, will you come and follow me? It's another version of what do you want? As is the fundamental question Jesus asked of his errant disciple Peter, do you love me? Jesus doesn't encounter Matthew and John or you and me and ask, what do you know? He doesn't even ask, what do you believe? He asks, what do you want? This is the most incisive, piercing question Jesus can ask of us precisely because we are what we want. Our wants and longings and desires are the core of our identity, the wellspring from which our actions and behavior flow. Our wants reverberate from our heart, the epicenter of the human person. Discipleship, we might say, is a way to curate your heart, to be attentive to and intentional about what you love. Discipleship is more a matter of hungering and thirsting than of knowing and believing. Jesus' command to follow him is a command to align our loves and our longings with his, to want what God wants, to desire what God desires, to hunger and thirst after God and crave a world where he is all in all, a vision encapsulated by the shorthand, the kingdom of God. Jesus is a teacher who doesn't just inform our intellect but forms our very loves. He isn't content to simply deposit new ideas into your mind. He is after nothing less than your wants, your loves, and your longings. What if, instead of starting from the assumption that human beings are thinking beings, we started from the conviction that human beings are first and foremost lovers? What if you are defined not by what you know, but by what you desire? 
What if the centering seat of the human person is found not in the heady regions of the intellect, but in the gut-level regions of the heart? You can't not love. That's why the heart is the seat and the fulcrum of the human person, the engine that drives our existence. We are lovers first and foremost. If we think about this in terms of the quest or journey metaphor, we might say that the human heart is part compass and part internal guidance system. Last paragraph. The longings of the heart both point us in the direction of the kingdom and propel us toward it. There's a resonance between the telos, that's the design or the end goal, to which we are oriented, and the longings and desires that propel us in that direction, like the magnetic power of the pole working on the existential needle of our hearts. You are what you love because you live toward what you want. So I suspect that false teaching and false teachers flourish when we have a problem with the desires of our hearts because we gravitate toward what we want, which means we will orient how we think and what we do around what we want. So if the Bible portrays a world which is primarily our desires that order our lives, and I think it does, that we have to ask ourselves some key questions. There's, I'm sure there's more than this. These are the four that I landed on this week. What do I desire? Why do I desire it? How is it shaping my actions? And what is it revealing about my heart? So uh, let's look at this on the level of things. Let's start with coffee. What thing do I desire? Coffee. Why do I desire it? Because it is delicious. How is it shaping my action? Coffee shops get a lot of my business. You're welcome, coffee shops. What is that desire revealing about my heart? Well, I'm not sure on this one with the level of coffee, but um, if you take my coffee away, we'll find out. So let's go a step deeper, though. And this is actually it's the step deeper that I really want to focus on today. We're working our way there incrementally. What do I desire to be true about the world? So let's go back to coffee again. What do I desire to be true about coffee? I want it to be true that coffee is healthy, or at least not unhealthy. I want it to be true that really cool people drink a lot of coffee. Now that I think about it, there's a lot wrapped up in coffee. Why do I desire that to be true? Well, so that I can drink coffee guilt-free. I want it to be healthy, so I don't feel like I'm letting down, say, my family by ruining my health drinking too much coffee. How is it that desire for that to be true is shaping my actions? Well, because I desire it to be true that coffee is healthy, I gravitate toward pro-coffee articles. So if I'm on my flipboard and I see some articles scroll through and some are going like, new research says coffee will kill you tomorrow, and the other article says, new research says you'll live to 120 the more coffee you drink, which one am I going to click on? Odds are really good I'm clicking on the pro-coffee article because that's the one I want to be true. And even if I click on the other one, I'm probably reading it. I, I'm already kind of poisoned. Like, I'm not going to go with this one. This, is, this has to be shoddy research. Not because it necessarily is, because I want it to be true that coffee is a particular way. I might even argue with coffee haters. I mean, if someone really gets in my face and is like, dude, coffee is horrible, I might become emotionally invested in it. What is that desire revealing about my heart? 
actually struggled with this one this week, so I'm like, what does coffee reveal about the desires of my heart? But I think I have one. I don't want to be told I can't or shouldn't have something that I like and that makes me happy. I'm also speaking to you, bacon and fried chicken. Like, that is, that is it, this, this desire reveals something in my heart. I don't want to be told that I can't or shouldn't have something that I like and makes me happy. Turns out I can learn more about the desires of my heart from coffee than I realized. So that's easy enough on coffee, on the level of coffee, but I'm going to make it tougher, and I'm going to make you uncomfortable. Heads up. This is going to make you uncomfortable. This makes me uncomfortable even as I was writing them, but please stick with me because this is about spiritual formation. Uh, we need to understand the desires of our hearts. All right. I'm going to give you three examples. Number one, you read a story that claims Joe Biden is guilty of sexual assault. Number two, you read a story that claims President Trump knew about the coronavirus in January, ignored warnings, and thousands of deaths are on his hands. Number three, you read two stories. One that says Governor Whitmer is actually making really good decisions for Michigan. And another one that says she's a terrible leader. All right, we're going to leave all three of those up on the screen, and let's walk through this as an exercise in exploring the desires of our hearts. What do you desire to be true in each of these stories? Do, do you actually want the bad news to be true, or do you want the good news to be true? Do, do you want the worst about people to be true, or do you actually want the best about people to be true? Uh, do I want stories to be true if people are hurt or abused or even killed if those stories are true? So the first question I want to ask is, like as I was writing through that, reading through that list, and maybe you felt a little surge of, ooh, like I wonder, I'll bet that's, why, why do we want that to be true? Especially if it's bad news. So our initial response is going to tell us something about the orientation of our hearts. Second, why do we desire that to be true? Okay, it could be because we love truth being brought to light. We want to see evil brought into the light. We want to see justice done. Okay, it could be that when, that when we read a story like that, we think, okay, if this is going to allow us to confront sin, then excellent, we need to confront sin. That could, that could be a motivation. But uh, even then, I think we could desire those things and still hope that the stories aren't true. I mean, could it be because you don't like that person that you want that story to be true? Could it be you don't like how that person leads, so you want that story to be true? Could it be that you've invested very publicly in a particular narrative, and if that story is true, it's going to confirm your narrative, but if it's not true, it's going to challenge your narrative, and you've already invested a lot in this, so you need it to be true, right? So that's the second question. Why do I desire it to be true? Third question, how is that desire for that to be true shaping your actions? Okay, you remember my coffee example? If I desire coffee to be healthy, I am going to be inclined to read and share articles that tell me coffee is healthy, not because those articles are necessarily true, because I want them to be true. All right, so how, how will this shape what we do with these news stories? It will almost certainly skew the news coverage that we read in the same way it would skew how I would read coffee. It will almost certainly impact how trustworthy or sketchy that I think witnesses or whistleblowers are. Right, if, I, if I'm not aware of this, I, I think kind of by default, 
the desires that we have for things to be true is going to gravitate us to click on articles, to share articles, to think certain things already about people involved in the articles. So last point, what is your desire for that to be true revealing about your heart? Okay, is it revealing, and this could be, is it revealing a heart for justice? Is it revealing a heart for truth? Um, is it, as you're wrestling with this, is it showing that your heart is tempered by mercy and grace? That could be, right? But I, I want us to ask the hard questions. It, could it be it's revealing a desire for someone to be shamed and humiliated? So we want that story to be true. Could it reveal that we have a heart that rejoices in evil stories, even if people are hurt, if these stories are true? Like, we're so invested in this narrative being true that even if it means people are hurt, we still want it to be true. Maybe it's showing we have a heart that's grieved and broken because it might be true, right? Is it leading us to pray in a particular way? I mean, I'm just wondering... What is the desire for things to be true telling us about our hearts? So just to be clear, I am not making a point about the truthfulness or falsity of any of these examples that I have used. In fact, if our hearts desire truth, we will honestly pursue looking very carefully at everything so that we can hopefully find truth because there's truth there to be found. Uh, so... I am not taking a stance on any of those stories. I'm just asking, can we explore the state of our hearts and the desires of our hearts based on our response, our emotions, and what we want to be true? Because the desire for reality to be a certain way will heavily influence how we see the world, how we process the world, and how we live in the world. And what we desire to be true will tell us a lot about our hearts. So I would argue that learning to identify and surrender our desires is an act of worship. And this includes in non-spiritual things because those habits are formative. And that formation is going to affect every part of our life. We're training ourselves for how to live in the world. James Smith gives an example of a movie he watched. I think it was out of Russia. And the premise of the movie was that these two men have been told there is a room that when you step into the room, it will reveal the desires of your heart. And they're very excited. And they finally get to the room, and then they bail. Why? Because suddenly they're afraid. Maybe they don't understand the desires of their heart. Maybe they walk into the room and, and suddenly reveal to the world is that the desires of their heart were far darker than they realized. So I think that's what's happening in the first century church. We see that desire left unchecked was filtering and distorting their ability to properly engage with objective reality in the pursuit of truth. So this is my question. How surrendered are our desires? For 2,000 years, the church has struggled with false teachers gaining following, which means for 2,000 years in the church, we have struggled with being people who are full of fallen and bad desires. This isn't news. Paul wrote about it. It's that war that rages inside of us. Thomas Boston was a famous Scottish pastor, and he once said, if people knew my heart, I wouldn't have four friends left in Scotland. This is why the psalmist prayed, create in me a clean heart. And that was a prayer by someone already committed to following God. Take this heart that we're so good at throwing dirt on 
clean it up, create in me a new heart. So let's try a spiritual exercise here. And I'm going to have to keep moving here. Uh, Carl, if you're listening to this, I'm going to do my best to be done by 1110. Right, so when we study the Bible or we listen to particular teachers, I think we need to ask ourselves the question, what do I want to be true about God's justice, God's mercy, my particular sin and how seriously God takes it, what followers of Jesus can expect in life, what does it take to achieve spiritual maturity? Is it a supernatural gift or a slow slog? What do I want to be true about the power of prayer? Does it align God with me? Does it align me with God? Does it change the world? Does it change nothing? Does it depend on my faith? Does it depend on my sincerity? What do I want to be true? How might that impact how I'm reading passages? My sexual choices and identity. What God demands of me as I relate to my spouse or my kids or my parents or friends or, for that matter, what God demands of them. What do I want to be true about heaven and hell and sovereignty and free will? This list could go on and on and on. That as I come to the word of God, I am bringing desires. I want certain things to be true. So the question I'm asking is, are we able to identify those things and recognize we have to be careful with how we read scripture? It matters because our minds will justify what our hearts desire. Then our feet are going to follow what our hearts love and our mind defends. The most important question isn't what I want to be true about these things I just listed. The most important question is what is true about these things. So last point, what is the solution? Okay, I've brought up the problem. I hope that I have clearly and faithfully identified the biblical source of the problem. This is a, a solution that I see throughout Scripture. I'm sure there's more can be added. This is a short summary. We need a Holy Spirit-guided Christian community that honestly studies the Scripture together and constantly prays for God to order the desires of our hearts. I don't think that I can reorder the deepest desires of my heart. Uh, that's a work that God does. So I'm praying for miraculous work to happen in me that only God can do. And I think God answers this prayer in four ways. Number one, part of that prayer is a flat-out miracle. We're Christians. We believe in the miraculous, supernatural work of God. So my fallen desires need God to step in and do a cleansing work that only God can do. Part of the answer to that prayer is the Bible. We've got to read the Word. Your Word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. Okay, but now I've also identified that part of the problem is, depending on our desires, we might approach the Word and find in it what we want to find rather than what's actually there. So uh, I'm going to introduce two, the last two things for this final point. There's layers and layers. Part of the answer to this prayer is that God will ask us to participate in the process. What I mean by that is that laziness is not a spiritual gift. Spiritual disciplines are a thing. Habits matter. I just talked this morning about what it looks like when I read the news to build a habit of identifying and surrendering my desires. It's spiritual formation. This is part of discipleship. We get the privilege and responsibility of investing sweat equity in God's plan. I can't tell you what this looks like for you in all of its nuances, but I'm confident it looks like this for all of us learning to identify and be honest about our desires 
and then laying them on the altar. When it's, when it's ordinary things like reading the news, it's laying it on the altar of truth, so to speak. I want to find objective truth. But in the more serious sense for us as Christians, it's laying on the altar where we surrender everything to God and say, especially when it comes to the Bible, I want to make sure I'm reading what you're saying, not what I want it to be saying. And then finally, and this is where I think it's crucial, we put godly people around us. Here, here's the thing. When I study for sermon prep, for example, I don't just read the Bible and explore the inside of my own head and heart. Because as we've just identified, that could be problematic. What I do is I read commentaries because I want to hear what other Holy Spirit-inspired people have had to say about things. I listen to other sermons. I listen to podcasts. There is a community of people that are going to bring stabilization to me. And even if my desires are front and center, man, I want this passage to say this. If I get enough God-fearing people around me and I'm wrong, I'm going to hear a corrective message again and again and again. But maybe I'll hear, actually, turns out, Anthony, you really wanted that to be true, and it, and it is. It's what the Bible's saying. Awesome. Either way, I'm better off for it. I'm either confirmed or I'm corrected, and both of those are good. We do spiritual life together because God uses others to shine the spotlight on our desires sometimes. So this can happen, of course, um, by checking out all the stuff you can get through media. I think it's intended to happen in the church locally first. And probably a combination of both of those things is a good thing because local things can go wrong, so can national things. And so there's this ebb and flow, there's this tension as we look close, we look far. We look what people are saying now, we look throughout church history. We look at what the creeds have said, what's been orthodox. We, we surrender ourselves and our autonomy to Christ first and then to the community of Christ followers. And then, but we've got to be honest. Lord, what are the desires of my heart? Are they aligned with your desires? Am I thinking your thoughts? Am I feeling your things? Do I love what you love? Uh, it, it's a lifelong journey, a lifelong journey, and it's crucial that in every area of life we begin to identify this. It helps us find stability just understanding the world. But following Christ and reading Scripture and understanding what it means to be a Christian and who God is, it's foundational. Lord, I feel like I went through that really fast this morning. Um, I, I just pray, Lord, that you shine a spotlight on the desires of our hearts that we can't look away from so that we can see ourselves honestly. And then, Lord, I know that you won't let it stop there. You lead us then in the process of surrender, of commitment, of reorienting our lives so that it aligns with your heart, mind, soul, strength. Lord, help us to do that. May we be humble and bold. May we be truth speakers with each other. May we repent and forgive all of this stuff um, I'm running out of words. I'm going to repeat myself soon. So, Lord, we, we beg for you to, uh, we, we, we long for that transformation. We long for that transformation. Thank you for being faithful and that when you begin a good work in us, you promise that you will continue it. That is good news indeed. Amen. 
This has been a presentation of the Church of the Living God. For more information, please visit us at clgonline.org.